Well, good morning, everybody. It's a delight to be here this morning. I'm uh, thankful for the beautiful day we have before us, the sunshine and the cool weather, not Canadian weather, just cool weather. So that's good. Well, it's a pleasure to uh, be here to study uh, God's holy word. And uh, before I begin, let's pray and then I'll read a portion of scripture together. Let's pray. Dear God, our Father in heaven, we're so thankful uh, for this whole day of worship. We pray that uh, we would enjoy this day and, and learn not only intellectually, but in our hearts that we would love you and be so thankful uh, specifically this morning as we learn about your word and how wonderful it is and how sufficient it is for salvation, uh, to reveal your glory, and also for our faith in life. And we ask that you will bless us uh, with the ability to understand and learn today. For Jesus' sake, amen. amen. Well, let's begin by reading a, a couple portions of scripture. I'm going to start with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, and we're just going to go into a portion of chapter 3. And then I'll flip over to 2 Timothy 3, but Ephesians 2 to begin with, starting at verse 19. Ephesians 2, verse 19, and on. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. We know the mystery of Christ is is the gospel, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Emphasis on that part. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effectual working of his power. And I'll end there and I'll turn to 2 Timothy now, chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. Pivotal verses in relation to the sufficiency of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, starting at verse 14. But you must continue in the things which you have heard, learned and have been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, <clears throat> for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So beautiful uh, texts concerning God's holy word. And so I've been tasked with the assignment of uh, paragraphs 6, 7, and 8 of the Westminster Confession. I am not going to get through it all in detail. I'm hoping that we'll get through a good portion of it. And I'm really going to front load it on chapter or uh, paragraph 6 of Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1. 
Uh, paragraph 6 is very full, and uh, it's a wonderful uh, paragraph to go through. Well, by way of reminder, uh, our brother Nate Baker has done a wonderful job. Uh, I've enjoyed listening to the uh, lectures uh, with respect to Scripture, and the first lesson was on the need of Scripture, why special revelation is needed. Uh, the second lesson what scripture is and what it is not. You know, the apocryphal books, the 66 books of the canon, that it's the only rule for faith in life, that it's inspired by God, and it's inerrant, infallible. And uh, he reviewed the canon of scripture as well. Then last week, lesson three, uh, he did uh, paragraphs four and five, and he spoke again of the infallibility and inerrancy of scripture. In chapter, uh, paragraph four, we, we learned about the authority of scripture. The authority of scripture for faith in life, it's derived from the fact that it is God's word. And this authority is not derived from man or church. Uh, This directly opposes the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, And its view that its authority is equal to the authority of scripture. That's rejected in our uh, catechisms, in our confessions. And then paragraph 5, the word of God itself displays characteristics which reveal that it is from God. And and Nate mentioned how he loves, it might be his favorite paragraph in this whole first chapter, and I have to agree. It's a beautiful paragraph. I'm not going to read it because we're not studying it today, but it is beautiful. And the paragraph provides a beautiful description of the wonder of the Bible. It's an amazing book. And despite its marvel, though, the Holy Spirit is still needed to confirm that it is from God. And we're going to get into that topic a little bit uh, more this morning. Well, we then move to paragraph 6, and I'll read it uh, with you. And if you need to find it, it's on page 920 of the Trinity Psalter hymnal. Uh, Paragraph 6 says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, into which nothing at any time is to be added whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the Church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. And so, wow, that was a rich paragraph with lots of things to talk about. So let's begin. And in a summary statement of this paragraph is that scripture is sufficient. That's really what it's ultimately talking about. And and again, this is articulated in what we read at 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so in, in 2 Timothy, Paul writes to, uh, to Timothy that the Scriptures are sufficient for these things. And of course, in that Psalm 19, which is a mixture of general and special revelation in that beautiful psalm, Verses 7 to 8, we read, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And so we see then that God's law, his word, is perfect and is profitable 
for believers. Actually, it's essential for believers based on what its content is. Well, with respect to the sufficiency of Scripture, there are three things that the whole counsel of God's word either expressly declares or by good and necessary consequence can be deduced by Scripture. And those three things are this. First of all, God's glory. Scripture is where we learn the whole counsel of God concerning his own glory. General revelation does reveal the glory of God as well. But Scripture really clarifies who God is in, in all his glory and wonder. And certainly this refers to how we know who God is. We can't rightly glorify God if we don't know who he is in his glory. And scripture is the place where we know God the most. And also how God is to be glorified, which he reveals us in his word. And the primary way we are to glorify God is through corporate worship. There are other ways to glorify God too. But corporate worship is the the way in which God has declared his name is to be glorified and worshipped. And that that corporate worship is regulated by scripture. And we call that the regulative principle. Uh, We are only to worship God as he has directed us in his word. And you can find that in in, uh, Westminster Confession of Faith 20. It really uh, opens up that whole idea of uh, corporate worship. And we'll get into some more of that later this morning. Um, God's glory is also seen, of course, in the other aspects that we're about to talk about. Namely... Uh, the salvation of his people, uh, as well as the faith and life of Christians. And so God's glory then is seen in his whole counsel in, in scripture. But also salvation is presented uh, as, as uh, the, the place where we can find God's will concerning our salvation is scripture. And so uh, it is scripture that we find the fall of mankind into sin, the doctrine of election, uh, the doctrines of God's covenant of grace, the person and work of Jesus Christ as mediator, and all other doctrines concerning the plan of salvation that God has decreed and implements within human history. And as we recall, general revelation, as Romans 1 states, is adequate to make us guilty, but not to save us, not to give us saving knowledge of the Lord. And we need scripture then for that. And so then how vital is scripture? It's absolutely vital, uh, God's revelation for our salvation. And finally, faith in life. Paragraph 6 mentions that scripture also lays out God's whole counsel concerning faith in life. And this is an extension of paragraph 2, which calls scripture the rule for faith in life. Uh, We're perhaps familiar with shorter catechism question answer 3, which states that scripture principally teaches what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And concerning faith... Uh, Chad Van Dixorn helpfully summarizes that all areas of Christian doctrine are, is to be derived from the Bible alone. Nowhere else. Scripture. It tells us what uh, we are to know with respect to Christian doctrine. And concerning life, uh, Van Dixorn states, the sufficiency of Scripture for life does not deny that we need constant and extensive information and supplies from the created world in order to live. Right? The Bible is not my manual how to change my oil in my car. But um, uh, we need other things, of course. Uh, But scripture is sufficient in the sense that no other special revelation from God is needed to guide us through life. Other than the revelation graciously available to us in the Bible. And so its sufficiency relates to faith in life. And actually, 
to the point where even when I'm changing my oil, it guides me how I should have an attitude to do that um, before the Lord. And so in summary, the knowledge of God and his glory for salvation, for faith, and for life in Scripture uh, is in Scripture, which is a declaration that God's word is sufficient in those areas. Well, it also deals with the manner, the manner by which these things are set forth in Scripture is dealt with next. Some things are expressly set down or are clearly written, clearly derived. You just read it and that's the information. Such things as God creating the world are abundantly clear in Scripture. Genesis 1 verse 1. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, that's at face value. God created everything materially. First Timothy 2 verse 5. We read there, for there is one God. And one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so, at face value, Jesus is the mediator between God and man. And there's only one God. And so, at the very surface, you read it and you get the information that's easily presented. However, some doctrines concerning God's glory, salvation, and faith in life are deduced by good and necessary consequence. And so, this becomes more interesting, doesn't it? Dr. Ryan McGraw, I'm getting his help today, uh, provides a helpful definition of this phrase, good and necessary consequence, as well as some other key points, and I will be referring to his really helpful little book, By Good and Necessary Consequence, that's the book title, for the next few statements. And so he says that good and necessary consequence refers to doctrines and precepts that are truly contained contained in and intended by the divine author of scripture, yet are not found or stated on the surface of the text and must be legitimately inferred from one or more passages of scripture. And so let me rephrase that definition. Just, I find it super helpful. Good and necessary consequence is that doctrines and precepts that are truly contained in and intended by the divine author of scripture yet are not found or stated on the surface of the text and must be legitimately inferred from one or more passages of Scripture. I think that's a helpful definition. And actually, we employ this principle a lot, perhaps more than we realize. An example of this is found in Genesis 1, verse 1, uh, which we just read, um, and from which we clearly learn that God created the heavens and the earth. But there are inferences also which we can deduce from that one simple verse. For example, God and nature are distinct. They're separate. They're not the same. We're not pantheists. God and nature are separate. Matter has a beginning, and only God is eternal. We derive that from that text as well by deduction. God created matter without using pre-existing material. There was nothing there, and he made it. All of a sudden, it's there. And that's what we deduce from that text. Uh, Even from texts which then expressly state truths, we can often make proper deductions concerning other truths as well. And so there's a depth to scripture and and good and necessary consequence. This principle helps us to derive these things. Well, McGraw gives an example of how this principle, when improperly employed, can lead to false conclusions. So, with respect to Joshua commanding the sun to stand still, 
in the sky in Joshua 10, verses 12 to 13. Hopefully we're all familiar. A fascinating portion of scripture. During the time of the Reformation, men such as Martin Luther insisted this proved that the sun revolved around the earth and not vice versa. They declared any other theory to be contrary to scripture. So a hard line. McGraw further states, yet this text simply describes the sun from man's earthbound perspective. Just as today's people still speak of the sun moving across the sky or the sun rising or setting. You don't say the earth spinning. Hey, look at the earth spinning. You know, the sun has just risen. But actually it hasn't risen. We know that. And yet our language, that's just how we are. It sees from our perspective. And so man, there's a principle about good and necessary consequence. Man is not to impose their ideas onto scripture, which some of the reformers did with this text. Jesus used the principle of good and necessary consequence. And actually, so did Paul. And we're going to get into some of these examples. And so, uh, if you wish, I will read, and you can turn with me if you wish, to Matthew 22, verses 23 to 33. And this is a really interesting example. Perhaps you've all heard of it, but... I find it fascinating, and you will too, I'm sure. Matthew 22, verse 23 to 33. So this is just before the crucifixion, and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes are attacking Jesus. And they're trying to find ways to trip him up, to to get a reason to have him put to death. And so, but of course they have no reason. But, But nonetheless, Jesus dialogues with them, and one of those dialogues is in verse 23. The same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they, are all, they all had her. And you can imagine they're all like, yeah, we've got him. There's no way he can overcome this. Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, Have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. And notice that the Sadducees were defeated by this argument, and they had no response. And so this is interesting. Here, Jesus proves the reality of the resurrection using a deduction derived from a passage from Exodus 3, verse 6, which reads, Moreover, so Exodus 3, verse 6 states, Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And notice here God said, I am the God of your father, not I was the God of your father. That's a huge difference. It's a tense of a verb. God was currently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At that time, at the time Jesus was speaking, which is many centuries later, they were with him at that time, even though they had died many centuries earlier. 
And this necessarily means that their souls lived on in the presence of God. And this also means that their bodies would one day live on, which is what Jesus referred to in declaring the reality of the resurrection. Now, it's interesting because Jesus could have used a different passage, a number of different passages. If you would uh, let me entertain you briefly with uh, Psalm 16. Psalm 16, I'm going to read verse 10 and 11. This is far more clear about life after death in the Old Testament. Psalm 16 10 and 11, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But Jesus didn't. He used the principle instead of good and necessary consequence to make his point. And I find that fascinating. Uh, Note that Jesus criticized the Sadducees for not knowing the scriptures because they did not use the principle of good and necessary consequence. And so good and necessary consequence carries the same authority. The the doctrines derived from it carry the same authority as doctrines derived from passages which are expressly laid down. Matthew 22 is not the only place where Christ or the apostles used good and necessary consequence. Other instances are that wonderful passage on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 where Jesus says that the Old Testament speaks of the things he must suffer as the Messiah. Uh, The Apostle Paul in Acts 9, verse 22, and Apollos in Acts 18, verse 28, both show from Scripture, that is the Old Testament, that Jesus is the Christ. And note that Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus being the Messiah, is not expressly set down in the Old Testament, but is rightly and overwhelmingly deduced from the Old Testament by good and necessary consequence. And so consider how we derive vital doctrines such as the doctrine of the Trinity. That's a huge, monstrous document that separates Christianity from everything else. One of them. There's other doctrines too. But it's derived from good and necessary consequence. There is not one scripture that like, you know, has you know, the Apostles' Creed in it, for example. That's not scripture. That's a deduction. And so... There are multiple passages that we use to derive the doctrine of the Trinity. That's utterly legitimate, and God has given us his word to reveal himself in that way. Is there any questions about good and necessary consequence? It's an interesting topic. Uh, I really highly recommend the book by Ryan McGraw called By Good and Necessary Consequence. It's a very small, 70 pages, fascinating read. Any questions? Yeah, go ahead. What's the difference between the good Good idea. So he actually uh, derives that. He, he said that necessary um, is something that is not to be imposed on Scripture. It's something that necessarily ought to be known. Whereas good, um, good is something legitimate uh, drawn out of it. Um, let's see if I, if I can recall exactly what he said. Uh, very helpful. Uh, Let's see, maybe I didn't record his words. Uh, Oh yeah, he further says that these inferences must be good, meaning legitimately drawn from scripture, and necessary, meaning not arbitrary or imposed. Like the fact that, hey, we know the sun revolves around the earth because of that. Well, that's not what the text is actually saying, so it's an improper uh, deduction. Uh, So... 
be a necessary deduction, but a bad deduction. <laughs> right. right. So you're reading yeah. a piece of scripture that is clearly trying to infer something. Right. But an incorrect conclusion would be bad and necessary consequences. <laughs> That's right. Bad and necessary. Go, yeah, go ahead, guys, in the back. Or... I guess practically, hmm. you like, okay, necessarily we're called to see a go to the nations and, you know, claim the gospel. However, you know, just because, you know, some church congregations like do that on Tuesday, it doesn't mean, you know, uh, you're feeling the good aspect of it by missing the Tuesday um, evangelism or whatnot. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Jeremy. Go ahead. Um, it was a question about the regulative principle as applied, so can you guys cover that later on the master? Well, I'll cover an aspect of the regulative principle. Uh, the regulative principle is actually unfairly in, in uh, chapter 20, <laughs> which we're in chapter 1. We've got a bit of a ways to go. But uh, we'll, we'll talk about and, and hold your question and your thoughts because there's an element of worship and a circumstance of worship. It's touched on in, chap- in, in paragraph 6 here, so I will get to that. So, yeah. So, okay. Well, let's keep going. Um, next, we, we read in paragraph 6, nothing is to be added or removed from Scripture. Um, God's special revelation to his people is complete. If things needed to be added or removed, the scriptures would not be sufficient. It wouldn't be perfect. Psalm 19. In John 15, verse 15, for example, Jesus said to his disciples, all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. That's a very broad statement. All things I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. If this is so, then we have the entire revelation of Christ before he returns Because Jesus revealed to the apostles what the church needed to know for God's glory and their salvation and for faith and life. Acts 20, verse 27. Paul declares, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. He could say this because he revealed to the Ephesian church all there was to know about the Christian faith. 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 17, which we have already read twice. And that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, If the scripture were not sufficient, if more were needed, how can Paul say that the man of God may be complete? Or, Or other translated... Translation say perfect. Well, the declaration of the author of Hebrews found in 10 verse 10, Hebrews 10 verse 10, says, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Indicates that in the work of Christ, including his one-time death on the cross, which the scriptures perfectly declare, it's the final and complete revelation of God until Christ returns. If scripture were not complete... Is there more to be known? Are we missing something still with respect to our salvation? This is so clear that that scripture ought not to be added to or removed. That Paul declares in Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Wow, that's a very strong statement. The Apostle Paul was aware of the dangers of adding to the gospel or removing from the gospel. Uh, Message declared in scripture. And 
I have not even touched the big one. Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19, we read there, John saying, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Wow, that is exceedingly strong with respect to scripture. Serious warning connected with removing or adding to. However, there is a question sometimes that's asked. What's John referring to? Is it the book of Revelation only? Or is it all of scripture? Well, to help answer this question, we remember that John was an apostle. A chosen vessel to reveal God's revelation to the church in the New Testament era. And this is important because God is building up his church um, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We read that at the very beginning from Ephesians 2. And that by revelation, God revealed the mystery of the gospel to his holy apostles and prophets in Ephesians 3. John was the last apostle. All others had died. No new apostles were coming. Um, and that meant that there was no further revelation to be given. The apostles and the prophets were almost done in John's day, at the end of his life. Um, in First Clement, this is interesting. This is not scripture. It's a fascinating letter from the early church, A.D. 95. So really early in the church's history. Clement, the author of that letter, says, I am not an apostle. This does not carry the same authority as the apostles. Isn't that interesting? So before 100 years have elapsed, without even almost half a century only after the death and ascension of Christ, resurrection and ascension of Christ, it was known in the church, those certain men, those apostles, they were special. I am a church leader, Clement said. I am not one of those. My letter is an encouraging letter. It is not scripture. So that's fascinating. Hey, they knew. The people knew. And so uh, the revelation capped off John's special revelation. So when God showed John the revelation, the book of Revelation, which is one revelation, uh, it capped off God's special revelation to his people. And therefore, it follows that the warnings about adding to the book meant the book of Revelation, as well as all of Scripture, were not to be added to. It was the capstone of the canon. And, and the church recognized that. As, as Nate, I think, touched on, that the Bible doesn't have the books because the church declared it to be so. Rather, the books are there because this church simply recognized from the Scriptures themselves that they are God's Word. And so that's very helpful. Furthermore, G.I. Williamson helps saying that the word to in the phrase, if anyone adds to these things, is a Greek word that also means and usually means on or upon. And so this is significant because it carries with it the idea of not adding upon that which God has given. And so not just the revelation, but the totality of scripture. It's as if there's a pile of scriptures and don't add anything to that. And so I think he articulates, and I, I find that an insightful comment, that that little word epi uh, means upon. Not to, it's translated to in English fine, but it has a bigger meaning than adding to it. It means adding upon it, upon all the things that God has given. 
And so, and so I, I am very comfortable in saying John means all of Scripture, not just that particular book of Revelation. Um, and, of course, this also refers to not removing anything from Scripture. Uh, who are we, honestly, to take away that which the eternal and infinite God has given for his glory, for our salvation, and for our faith in life? Who is man? We're finite. We're limited. We have a short span in this life. God is eternal. He has given us his revelation. If we honor him, who are we to take away even a syllable of his word? And so, um, you know, it's impossible that such a thing be allowed to occur. And so we have scripture, a completed canon, and nothing can be added to it or taken from it. If it could, it would not be sufficient. It would not be the perfect word that it claims itself to be. Any questions about that? Go ahead, brother. Uh, I always thought that perfect is a word that people have real trouble with. To me, it mm. means finished product. Right, interesting. You know, and that's, and that's, what, that's what I think you're saying here yeah. at the end, is that this book is a finished product. It's, it's, it's there, and you perfect. It means man can't be perfect because he's totally depraved. Right. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. got to come from somewhere else. I mean, yeah, amen. That's right. An otherworldly source. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a broad meeting. Inerrant and infallible also is helpful. Yeah. I think in Latin word, it comes from facio factory to make something. Mm. And per means to make through, through to be to be made done. Right. And right. Like, well done. It's over. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you for the insight. If it were not, then it's not sufficient, and then more would need to be added, which is not the case because it is a completed product. So thank you. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, I, yeah, there are other words that you could. It's a those kind of little words. There's a lot of words that could be, but I, I don't. I don't know if I would like. I'm I'm comfortable in saying it's not a mistranslation. I mean, who am I? I'm just a seminary guy who just learned some Greek, you know. Um, but uh, I, I, I mean, probably that's the correct word. But it's nice, it's helpful to know the original language because then you have a bit more of a nuance. You can step back and say, hey, actually, there's a bit of more broader meaning. Two is the right word in English, but it also means upon. And, and if we were to read, don't add anything upon God's word, that would be a little awkward for us. So, uh, but there are other words. And so, but two is a good translation I'm comfortable with. I don't know, did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. That's right, a bigger depth, breadth to the meaning. So, yeah, I appreciate that. Anything else? I have a fair amount of material. Well, not too much left. I, I want to get it done if possible, but and, and ask questions, though. It's good. Uh, so, and then we have, we move on then to the necessity of the Holy Scripture uh, for understanding and salvation. Paragraph 6 goes on saying t- that it adds to the work of the Holy Spirit as declared in paragraph 5, where he is said, to convince us of the truthfulness of Scripture as being the word of God. Paragraph 5, Holy Spirit needed to convince us of its truthfulness. Well, in paragraph 6, we read that the inward illumination of the Spirit of God is necessary for the saving understanding of such things that are revealed in the word. And so we find Jesus saying this very thing in John 6, verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught by God. Taught by God himself. Therefore, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. We also read in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 to 12. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. 
But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. You can't get much more clear than that. We don't need good and necessary consequence there. Um, For the spirit searches all things, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. And what has he given us? His word. And so the Holy Spirit helps us in that. And so the Holy Spirit reveals God's word to us. Uh, He gives us understanding. Uh, Pastor Ivy, for example, and and I do as well, uh, you'll notice this morning, he'll pray for the Holy Spirit's illumination uh, after he reads scripture and before he begins to preach. And that's why we understand that we need God's spirit. And and I think, uh, you know, one of the great disasters in the world is the Enlightenment. Uh, and, and that imposed man's reason upon Scripture. Disastrous. You know, if we really understand who we are, as the Bible reveals to us, we would know, hey, we're totally depraved. You know, we're sinners. We, we sin and fall short. We're finite, too. Even our very creatureliness causes us. Brother? We don't bring much to the table. We don't, amen. We don't bring much to the table. And so we need God to help us understand the depths of his word. You know, we're at enmity with God naturally. Man, we need someone to overcome that so we can benefit from his wonderful revelation. And so in his grace, he has given us his spirit. So what a wonder, what a joy uh, that we have the Holy Spirit. Uh, Francis Beatty remarks that the spirit first gave the word, the spirit evidences the word, and the spirit teaches the saving meaning of the word. And so very significant uh, Work of the Spirit, every time we pick up God's word, he is working in us. What a joy. And so we need the Holy Spirit to have our minds illuminated to gain gain a saving understanding of God's holy word. And he has been given to us. What a wonderful. Sometimes doctrine just causes you to praise. (laughs) When you realize, wow, how how great God is. Um, Now, Notice, and this is a big issue today in the broader Christian church. Notice how the Spirit here does not give us new knowledge apart from Scripture. But he reveals what we have in God's word to us. That's a really vital point. Uh, in the charismatic world and in the, in the Roman Catholic church too, it claims uh, that, that it often claims a special revelation. You know, there's a book called, I think it's called Jesus Calling. Maybe you guys have heard that. I think I got the title right. Yes. I, I don't remember the lady who, who wrote it. This is a woman who claims she, had, over the course of time, received direct revelation by Jesus Christ. And she wrote it all down in a book for all of us to have. If that's true, that's got to be an addendum on after the book of Revelation. It really does. It's, it's got to be canonical then. Um, and it simply is not. Uh, the content will quickly reveal uh, that it is not canon. It's not scripture. It's not a revelation. Uh, and then and, and our dear Bibles are, are insufficient. If this woman has a direct revelation from God that we all need to know, uh, then, then the Bible is not sufficient. And so, so these are claims that must be debunked. What's a consistency throughout church history for the last 2,000 years? That, not Jesus calling. This is what God has given us. All of the saints from the the ascension of Jesus until now have had his holy word. Let's be content with it. More than content. Let's love it and delight in it. 
There's an ocean of theology there that we'll never be able to tap into for our whole lives. And when we get to heaven, we will know the author in perfection, and he's infinite. And we'll every moment have a new understanding of him that will never, ever end. Can you imagine? We'll learn more and more and more wonderful things about God, and that, that reality will never stop. And so, amazing. So let's delight in, in God's holy word. It is truly sufficient. And so we need then to read the Bible. Uh, we need to ask the Lord's help to illuminate our minds and hearts. And we can be encouraged that the Lord will bless us with a saving knowledge of Christ because of his covenant promises to us. What a wonderful God. Uh, what grace. Well, moving on to the last section of paragraph. Oh, does anyone have any questions about that? I shouldn't move on too quickly. Any questions about that part? Okay. Things ordered by the light of nature concerning worship, church government, and life in society. Scripture is sufficient. Despite that, God has given us the light of nature, Christian prudence, and the general rules of God's word to guide us in the circumstances of worship and the government of the church common to human actions and societies. In other words, this means that there are aspects of worship and church government that can be decided by God's people based on wisdom, natural understanding, and the principles outlined in his word. Can you imagine if every small little detail had to be exactly set out for us? Like the times of our worship, whether we're sitting on chairs or not, whether we're in a building, the Bible would be huge, right? It would be too big to even functionally have. It's impossible. And so God in his wisdom and goodness has given us wisdom, the light of nature, and the general rules of, of scripture. And so, for, the, for example, the establishment of a set time for worship, uh, the fact that we use chairs uh, and that we meet in a building are all circumstances that are, we're free to change and alter as wisdom and the needs of our congregation dictate. So we're, we're okay to change these things. Uh, we see this in society in America. There are lots of Orthodox Presbyterian churches, and a lot of them don't start at 10.30 a.m. Some start at 9, some start at 11 a.m., that sort of thing. And so this is circumstances of worship. Now notice these things, and here I'm getting into the regular principle a little bit. Notice they don't change uh, the uh, elements of worship at all. An element of worship is that which is prescribed by God to be in worship, and this includes the reading of scripture, preaching, the sacraments, prayer, the singing of psalms, and at other times, oaths and vows. And we can find that list in Westminster Confession of Faith uh, 21.5. On the other hand, circumstances of worship are things that enable worship to be able to occur in a reasonable, safe, and orderly manner. And so, so we have that difference there. God declares that certain things in worship need to occur. Call to worship, benediction, preaching, singing, prayer, sacraments. But whether or not we sit or stand, that's okay. We have the wisdom and freedom to do that. And so... Um, but scripture, nonetheless, even in that environment of circumstances, enables us to use the wisdom of scripture and the guidance of his word to make wise and good decisions. Any questions about that? Go ahead. Yeah. With the separation between circumstances and elements of worship, you might have just answered my question. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Uh, there's been some discussion between myself and um, people from other OPC congregations about choirs. Mm hmm 
Uh huh. Right. Yeah, that's a great, great question. Uh, Habakkuk 3, by the way, just a quick shot uh, or point. I'm not an exclusive psalmist in, in worship because of books like Habakkuk. Habakkuk 3 actually also has a, a song in it that's to the choir master. So that's almost a hymn. Anyway, side point. But um, uh, So we have in, in uh, the New Testament setting a change in the way worship is carried out. You know, in, in Israel, they had a central place of worship, i.e. the temple, and you would have a huge gathering of thousands and thousands of Israelites. In fact, the Psalms of Ascent are designed to prepare pilgrims to worship as they're going up the hill of Jerusalem to worship their God in the temple. And so when you had the dedication of the temple, for example, there were thousands and thousands of animals sacrificed, huge feasts that lasted a great deal of time because of the magnitude of the people. And so they would have a choir to lead all the people in singing. They would have instruments, many types of instruments, um, that, that would enable proper orderly worship to occur among these thousands. We're in a different setting now, and uh, in, in various portions of Scripture, we have different ways, especially the book of Acts, and how New Testament worship occurs uh, in spirit and in truth, uh, no longer in a central setting, but all over the world. I, I love there's a video, uh, Spirit and in Truth, a, a really good movie on worship. Dr. Pipe in there says, all we need is the scriptures, a flask of water, a flask of wine, and a loaf of bread, and we can worship anywhere, on the battlefield, in a living room, anywhere you want, because we, we're in a New Testament setting where the gospel mandate has gone forth. And so that affects our worship. And so I, 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 there's an elder here. I'm going to be careful, brother. I say choirs and church are good. Just intersperse them all around the congregation and they can bolster congregational singing. <laughs> That's a bit of a twist to the whole thing, but uh, go ahead. <laughs> I think uh, being an American, uh, even though I'm a first generation on my mom's side, it's according to the Book of Church Order, which licensed the session to operate on behalf of the congregation and what that relationship is actually like. And a lot of people are uninformed mm. and never read the book. Um, It's true. Thank you, sister. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think our session, and I, I'm so thankful, emphasizes corporate worship. And so if you have a choir, that's not corporate anymore. You're sitting listening to a song. You know, I, I think there's different arguments that can be made, but I, I, it's important. I think the principle is corporate worship, and so we sing together. Go ahead again. The only thing I'd like to add, mm. something I'm studying, maybe I need to talk with you, is um, I know in the early church, when the temple was going, they sacrificed 
-hmm. And then they had special times where they called everybody to come three times a year. Sometimes it was the men, sometimes it was family. Mm. And then I see Christ going and following them, going specifically to the Jews in synagogues, mm. which I'm thinking were like little house on the prairie. No, 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 bear with me a minute. Mm. It was open seven nights a week. It mm. was the local schoolhouse where Jews would have their children taught Torah. Right, right, yeah, it's true. And a lot mm -hmm. of times when we go to the prophets and the scripture, you're talking about people that understood and knew or had memorized their Old Testament. Mm. We have a lot of people in this country who never read it. Right, right. Yeah. We're basically Gentiles again, mm -hmm. influenced by Greek and, and Roman culture. Sure. And that's what's been taught in the United States for a good 50 years. Oh, or more even. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. That's true. Maybe 100 years even. Yeah, when yeah. secular society took over the school system, a lot of what mm. was introduced to this country was from an enlightened thing that took over all of these seminaries mm. and made the Princeton and Westminster the secular societies that they are today. No, it's true. There is great ignorance with respect to yeah. scripture. Church government so worship. Yeah. Hush, I, I get worried. I live in okay. the country way too long and just talk to chickens. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. Um, I often think, wouldn't it be a grand thing to open every church building seven days a week to have it be the local school? Mm -hmm. Of course, we came and chewed the fat. Right. You know? Right. Any time you wanted to, you could meet mm. and assemble and worship and sing. Sure. And then also have that sacred, maybe traditional, mm. uh, what, what was it called? Um, some people call it um, contemporary or formal, formal worship, mm. you know? And not just say, well, you can do what you want to do in mm. Sunday school or at home, but when you're in formal worship, you know, mm. it's like, should I ask questions in Sunday school? Some congregations, that would not be looked well upon. Right, right. Because I'm a woman, and mm. I would respect that if I understood where I was. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I appreciate the insights. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, certainly the Lord does, by, you know, in this paragraph, it articulates that we have some measure of freedom. So you, it's okay, actually, to have some non-cookie-cutter approaches, like maybe having your offering after the preaching instead of before, that sort of thing. The element's still there, but, you know, and so there is a variation. But, yeah, the elements are there. Did I answer your question? Yes. Okay, good. All right. So I'm going to move quickly. I'm not sure exactly how long I should be up here, but a few more minutes. for this class is not Okay. You want me to end? Paragraph 6 is over. Paragraph 7 and 8 await. I think I have another two pages. Uh, the clarity of Scripture and the, uh, and, uh, the Bible in Hebrew and Greek. <laughs> but uh, I, I, why don't I stop here and we'll, uh, we'll take up the rest next time. Uh, but that's good. I appreciate the dialogue and uh, happy to talk about it after too. But let's pray together and uh, we'll get ready for corporate worship. Dear God, our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for your kindness and goodness to us. We're so thankful that you have given us in your grace and mercy and in your covenant love, the Bible, your special revelation that reveals who we are as fallen needy people and who you are as a God who is holy and righteous and good and merciful and reveals to us Jesus Christ, our Savior, and, our, and the Holy Spirit who fills us with the knowledge of the truth. We pray that we would delight now in entering in together into corporate worship with your people, Bless our brother, Pastor Ivy, as he proclaims your word and leads us, and help our hearts to be inflamed with a love for you and a growth in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.